0: Um, But let me just make a a couple of qualifying comments before I do read it through. I think it's worth just thinking, who is Paul addressing in each category and what is he saying to them? Um, I think it's worth just thinking through who teaches who in a church setting. I think that can be really helpful. As Paul talks about church order and church health, there are certain types of people, as in age and gender, that teach other people. So it's worth just looking at that and thinking Work its way out in church life. When it talks about women being busy at home, I think it's really incredibly important that we realise this is not 1950s America. That most industry in the first century took place in the home. So this is basically saying that women, look after your families, work hard. That might be business. You know, the, the, the woman in Proverbs 31 is a remarkable woman in the business world looking after a family. So we don't look at this and go, this is 1950s America. We go, actually, what does the Bible say about the proverbial woman in Proverbs 31? I think it's worth thinking that through. I think it's also worth noting that um, the Bible does not agree with slavery in the context that it's described in Titus 2. The Bible is against that type of slavery completely. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, we're told, aren't we, that slave traders will not inherit Um, It is incompatible with the gospel to be a slave trader. If you were a slave trader and you become a Christian, you've got to change professions. But it's also worth noting that actually, in a sense verses 1 to 10 give us the uh, the pattern of the good life for how we relate to each other within a church family but they also show us the purpose of life that we in our lives adorn the gospel Are not about self fulfillment and self satisfaction and comfort or career our lives are primarily about giving glory to God and the way our had to bring glory to God so comments. let me read verses 1 down to 15 but as for you teach what accords with sound doctrine older men are to be sober minded, dignified, self controlled sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness older women likewise are to be reverent in behaviour not slanderers or slaves too much wine or slaves to too much wine They are to teach what is good, and to train the younger women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. It's worth noting there, if you're an older man, don't try and be a 20-year-old. Actually, as an older man, you have something to offer that a 20-year-old can't offer. Most of the older men and women that we know, myself included, are trying to be younger than we are. And forgetting that actually being an older man and an older woman has a significant impact if we do it in a godly way on the church family that we're part of. So, so be who Christ has made you at this point in life. Don't try and be something or someone else other than Christy. And remember the chickeny thing? We want to be Christy. Um, the passage goes on. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works. This is Titus, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing else to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not showing, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. just worth pausing to think, isn't it? In the workplace tomorrow, In your family, when you get home tonight, how are you going to adorn the gospel of Christ in the way you treat the person that you see as you go through the door, perhaps at home or in the office or wherever God has placed you? How are you going to adorn the gospel as you get home? Uh, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self controlled upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ, He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. let no one disregard you. Um, so we have that teaching about Uh, elders in verses 5 to 9, and in a sense many of the qualities that we see in verses 5 to 9 are qualities that as men we are to be pursuing, and yet we know we get loads of stuff wrong. Um, That list, particularly in verses 7 and 8, probably rubs us or pinches us at some point. Um, And then we get a load more teaching in verses uh, 2, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, about yeah, it's the good life. If we live like this, it adorns the, the gospel of Christ. Makes Christ look good. We'll be attractive to the world. But we see a list of stuff there and we go, great, we've just got another list of things we've got to do. So, how can we be the type of men in chapter one and how can we be the type of men in chapter two? It might be you sit there this evening and say, I want to be like that. I want to do it. But. I just can't do it, can, can any, I'm sure lots of you can remember this uh, classic 90s TV, um, can you remember it? Saturday evenings, gladiators, they'd go through that massive obstacle course at the end and then they'd get to the travelator and uh, you could see these mega fit people who'd just been brutalised for an hour. They would be at the bottom, desperate to get to the top, and they had this passion to do it. They were driven. They must have been driven athletes to get through what they got through. They were trying their hardest, and yet sometimes they could not do it. And the reality is, sometimes we try hard to live the Christian life. We sort of heard what we should be, and heard what we should do, and we take the directions, perhaps from Titus 1 or Titus 2, and we try hard and we fail. Now, if we look at Titus 1 and Titus 2, and I basically say to you, uh, try hard, and you say, I'm trying hard, and I say, well, be more self-controlled and try even harder, well, that isn't good news, is it? That isn't grace, and it has no real power, because actually, we can only try so hard. Now, I'm not saying... We shouldn't have some effort involved in our godliness. But the root of becoming more Christy is not us just trying hard. It's based in what we read in verses 11 to 15. So just in case you're a slave who's just read verse 9 and gone, Great, you told me I've got to stay a slave. This is really, really hard. How do you expect me to be a good slave when I think slavery is wrong, my boss is horrible, and I'm completely suppressed in every way that you can imagine? How on earth can I live for Jesus as a slave with a master like that? And you might think, how on earth can I live for Christ with the temptations I've faced and the setting I've got and the marriage that isn't the way I want it to be and my children that drive me nuts and a business that is just actually competing in a world that is not truthful and honest? How can I live? like this, what does Paul say? He says, for the grace of God has appeared. So how do we close the gap between the patterns that we're given to live as men of God and the goals that in a sense we may aspire to and the reality that we all fail? How how do we close the gap How can we leave here this evening, not just thinking pizza was good, don't invite him again, and actually I just feel that Titus 1 and Titus 2 are just unattainable. How do we close the gap? That slave is going, how can I live well for you, where you put me, God? Well, how do we do it? God's grace has appeared. It's all about God's grace. Look down at verse 11 with me. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Now, in the original language, verses 11 to 14, is actually one long sentence. And all of the thoughts that we're going to look at in the remainder of our time together this evening, they're themes, they're sort of intertwined, they're co dependent. It's one long sentence, one big deep breath if you are reading it in the original language. But they begin in the NIV and in the original language with that word for. And in the ESV uh, you get exactly the same thing. For the grace of God has appeared. How do we become men who are more Christy in the way that we live? How do we become men who live where God has placed us in an unjust, broken, unfair world and the consequences of that. How do we live more Christy there? Well, we focus in on grace. It is wonderful for the grace of God has appeared. It is a glorious truth. Um, It's worth pausing here to think that actually Our lives are surrounded, as I said before, by the love of God that knew us before the foundation of the earth and the love of God that will carry us into eternity. Here, in verses 11 and verse 13, we see that we live our lives between Christ's two appearings. They're bookended. Our lives are bookended by the appearing of Christ. When he came that first time, in grace to rescue and save, and when he will come the second time as judge of the world to call his people into the new creation. So we live in the security of eternal love and we live between the coming of Christ the first time and wait for the coming of Christ the second time. Look at verse 11 again. The grace of God has appeared, past tense, that offers salvation to all people. And then verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the Lord, of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Your, your life is surrounded by love, bookended by eternal love as a Christian, and your life is bookended by the first appearing of Christ and the second appearing of Christ. The, the in-between bit might be uncomfortable sometimes. It is uncomfortable. We live in a broken world. We all experience pain and suffering, but that is not the same as being insecure. We are unbelievably secure, even when we feel insecure. There's eternal love, and there's the appearing of Christ, and the return of Christ. We know that definition, don't we? Sunday School definition of grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. You know, at Christmas, which is coming round very quickly, we remember Jesus, the creator of the universe, graciously appearing in his creation. As we read the Gospels we see Jesus graciously living among a fallen and broken people. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and the whole of Scripture contain the message of Christ graciously offering his life on the cross for the payment of his people's sin. And as the Gospels close they show the King of Grace rising victorious from death. Grace has appeared and this King offers salvation. This king offers rescue. This king offers redemption, freedom, adoption, eternal hope and grace to all people. This grace is magnificent. It goes to the leper, the woman caught in adultery, the woman by the well, the Gentile centurion. Uh, the church I serve in is called All Souls. It literally is a gospel for all souls. It is a welcome to any that will respond to him. Grace. Where do we find the how to become more like Titus 1 and 2? It's not by willpower alone. It's by understanding more and more fully the grace of God. Uh, A little while ago, we were in a pub not far away, and Rag and Bone Man came in. And you could just hear the whole pub going, Rag and Bone Man. He might have been in the pub or a restaurant near here where he's coming to a pub or a restaurant near you and you've had exactly the same conversation. I was just like, just let the guy get on with his friends. Uh, And we know that one of the first songs that lots of people remember is, I'm only human after all. It's as if that phrase, I'm only human, gives us the right as a culture just to say, well, I'm only human, that's why I lose my temper. I'm only human, that's why I'm dot, dot, dot. But Christian brothers, Christ's appearing has changed you. He has called you into family. He has given you new birth. He has given you the spirit of God. And in his mercy, as you reflect on grace, there will be an increasing desire to respond to grace. My wife tells me I must love her. It doesn't work very well. If I see my wife loving me and I naturally love my wife, then actually I do the things that I should do as someone who loves her. Now, there are times when you just do the right thing because it's the right thing. The feelings aren't always there. But as we reflect on the grace of God, there will be a sense in which our will will increasingly want to live the life of God. And it's not just about me determining to do something. It's about me falling in love with the King of Grace and going, actually, I want to please you. not just about self-control and discipline. I'm not dissing those things. But they will not help us grow uh, ultimately in godliness, looking at the grace of Christ's will. Back in chapter 1 and verse 2, Paul says that knowledge of the truth leads to godliness. It's interesting, isn't it? It's not ritual. It's not sort of process. It's not even attendance at church, although I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Do come back on Sunday. It's knowledge of the truth. As our knowledge of the king of truth, the ultimate truth, grows, as our knowledge of who he is and who we are grows and develops, our natural desire our natural understanding of why it's good to pursue Christ-likeness will begin to grow and mature. You know, it doesn't take long when you're a child, does it, to learn that banging your head against the wall is not a good thing to do. And the more we understand Christ and his ways, the more we realise that some of the things we thought we'd have a go at actually aren't good, they aren't beneficial, because we just see that it doesn't make sense as we see who Christ is and his love and his grace. So let's think about how that grace transforms us. Just touched on it back in 1-2, the knowledge of the truth. But can you see how the work of grace transforms us? It transforms our heads. Look down at verse 12. We read there, It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. Uh, We go down to Whitesmith to... uh, a campsite down there as a church family every year we have a great weekend away um, and the way we get everyone together is we have this big old school bell um, that we ring and some of us here will be old enough to remember a teacher coming out into the and ringing a school bell and that meant your lessons were about to begin you were going to learn something hopefully and as the spirit of God works in us as the knowledge of the truth grows in us Our heads are transformed. Bit by bit, our thinking is renewed, so godly living makes sense. And ungodly living becomes more of an anathema to us, or more ridiculous to us, as our heads are transformed. You know, one of the biggest arguments you have with small children is when you tell them to do something, and they're not old enough to understand why they need to do that. Or you tell them not to do something, and they don't understand why if they do that, actually (laughs) possibly going to result in their termination, you know, it's just dangerous. But as we grow in the knowledge of this grace, as our heads are matured, then actually godliness flows, godliness follows. It's wonderful, wonderful truth. As a child, I remember the first time I was confronted with a quadratic equation. I, I suspect, well, it was certainly a foreign language then, And I think it um, would be a foreign language now if you asked me to do one now. I don't think I could. A desire to solve that problem was never going to be enough. You know, you could have put a quadratic equation in front of me when I was 13 or whatever it was in the school curriculum in those days. And just said try hard. And I could have tried as hard as I possibly could to solve that. And I would have had no hope. Absolutely no. My, My willpower alone will not have been enough to solve a quadratic equation. And your willpower alone is not enough to enable you to become elders' qualities here or the the good life in chapter 2 and verses 1 to 10. (coughs) You need a teacher. You need someone to come alongside you and say, this is how you do it. This is why you do it. This is what it looks like to do it. And God's Word does that. And God's Word is Christ's Word. Breathed out by his Spirit, our minds are transformed And godly living becomes more understandable. So our minds are transformed. Our heads are transformed. Uh, Also our hopes are transformed. Look down at verse 13. Uh, We live right and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Uh, years ago I took part in the Three Peaks Challenge in North Yorkshire. You have to walk uh, 24 miles in under 12 hours. You go uh, up Penny Ghent Wernside and Ingleborough. Uh, I paid a few quid to enter and uh, it was a race and uh, you were guaranteed wherever you came in the race a, a cup of tea. A cup of tea and a certificate. Um, and I sort of trudged around and did it in under 12 hours with a few friends. And it was just unbelievable to watch these fell runners. Like, come, They were like gazelles leaping past. It was, it was quite incredible to see how fit and sort of lithe they were. But for me, as a, a guy that does not walk 24 miles very often, it was a bit of a slog. Uh, Now there were bits of the walk that were great, they were fun, they were amazing, I was with some good friends, there were amazing views, there was some camaraderie, there were funny bits when people fell in bogs, it was, yeah, some of it was good, but some of the walk was cold, demanding and exhausting, and I can actually almost remember now sort of the fantasy of this warm mug of tea waiting for me, you know, a, a sit down in a nice cafe with some friends and a mug of tea, at some points in the day that was all I wanted. That hope that as long as I completed it, under 12 hours, the tea would be waiting. Why is the book Pilgrim's Progress so enduring? Because it outlines so helpfully the highs and lows, the slog of the Christian life, but also the hope of eternity, the certainty of eternity, not for a cup of tea, but for the new creation, the heavenly city guaranteed by Jesus. Do you know, why do kids always say when you're on a journey, are we nearly there yet? Well, it's ultimately because although the journey might be okay, it's the destination that fills them with joy. Now, we are journeying home. Now, we might think that the language of being pilgrims is a little bit Church of Englandy, or fellow travellers, it just sounds a bit sort of hippie, but as we are, this is not my home, I am travelling home. This is not where I belong anymore. My future is in the new Jerusalem where everything will be perfect. There will be no more more weeping, no more tears, no more crying, no more dying. That is where I'm going. And that is where you are going. And life can be quite rubbish now. I shared with some of you that six years ago, my eldest daughter's first child died at birth. And then two months later, she went blind because of medical complications. That was a brutal year. But what kept her travelling? The hope that Christ was not going to let her go now and that she would see him with her own eyes in eternity. So how do we live godly lives? It's knowing that we're on our way home. It's having our hopes transformed. Hope sets the agenda for the way we live. Hopeless people struggle to live. You know that. All of us here over a certain of age have struggled at some point with depression. Some of us may struggle with it constantly. All of us over a certain of age will have had periods of depression when we just feel hopeless and it is horrible. But as Christians, we travel with hope. We travel with minds that are increasingly being renewed. Godliness makes sense. And our Saviour is so glorious, we want to live for him. And we travel with hope, knowing that even now, when life is rubbish, everything is going to be okay. We travel with hope. And because we travel with hope, it means we can put up with the uphill bits. We can put up with the struggles. We can put up when the mist descends. It can put up when our feet get wet, because we've stepped in the bog. It's not nice, it's not comfortable, nobody likes it. But we travel with hope, because we know the cup of tea Is waiting for us, and that's what that's what Paul says here to the slave. You know, get to know Jesus better, and actually serving him where you are will make more sense. And by the way, you do know you're not going to be a slave forever, don't you? You're a child of the King, and one day you'll be in the new creation. You travel with hope. We all need to travel with hope. Traveling with hope will mean that you. Keep getting to your bowl study because actually you realise it's important. You keep giving your money because you realise gospel proclamation in this part of this world is really significant. You keep persevering in your marriage because actually you know one day your spouse and you are going to be perfect. You keep loving your kids because actually Christ has always loved you. Hope changes everything and as Christians we have wonderful hope. So the gospel of grace, it transforms our heads. It means we are travelling with hope. And that means our hearts are touched as well. Look at verse 14. How can your heart not be touched? By verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. And to purify for himself a people that are his very own. Isn't that a glorious verse? Just think about some of the praises there. He gave himself, freely, offered, to pay the price. He redeemed us, rescue, ransom, buying back from wickedness, literally lawless behaviour. I am chapter 1 and verse 12, even worse than that before a holy God. Lost in wickedness, but he has purified me. He has cleansed me, he has washed me. He has made me his very own. He has made you his very own. You belong to him. You are his possession, secure before eternity, for eternity, surrounded by the appearing of Christ and the return of Christ. And as he unpacks that transformational grace, can you see that phrase? We become people eager to do what is good. Can you see as your mind is transformed, or in the words of Romans 12, renewed, Can you see that as your hope is kindled, can you see that as you reflect on the one who gave himself for you, godliness seems more attainable? It's not about me running up the travelator. There is a sense in which I labour and struggle with all his strength to live for the glory of God, as Paul says, but there's a sense in which I'm not just doing it by sheer willpower on my own. I'm going, wow, the gospel is great. My hope is eternal. My Saviour is wonderful. I'm going to press on. And when I get it wrong, I'm going to confess my sin and press on. And I'm going to help my brothers press on. Can you see how uh, the chapter finishes for Paul speaking to Titus, this minister who felt out of his depth like if most ministers are honest, they feel most of the time. These then are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. How do you get a healthy church? Firm foundations? You listen to stuff like this. You let the gospel capture your heart and you live for Christ, eager to do what is good. Um, Yesterday my wife said we'd had a phone call from uh, uh, someone who doesn't come to our church but they're aging father does come to our church and the family of the aging father can't have him for Sunday lunch in two weeks and uh, they phoned us to say, we're out of town we're going on holiday for a week, would you have our father for lunch? and there's part of me that went, flipping cheek (laughs) you're going on a jolly and you want me to give your father lunch? just felt like, this is a bit strange. Don't you know how busy I am? And all the righteous indignation, unrighteous indignation kicked in. And then I read this passage. Eager to do what is good. Just as I finish, thank you for listening so well. We are called to living godly lives. Men pursue chapter 1, verses 5 to 8 whether you're an elder or not, if you're an elder, make sure you do verse 9. Men, make sure, whether you're an older man or a younger man, that you're doing what is directed here. Yes, that, that is the way we're called to live. But it's not about willpower primarily, because our willpower is weak. How many of you had one more slice of pizza than you intended to? Our minds when they are transformed, our hope when it is transformed, and our living when we reflect on our Saviour, will turn us into men who are increasingly eager to do good, at wherever the Lord has put us. And if you're an elder, verse 15, make sure you teach these things. Make sure you encourage people with these things, and rebuke those who are not teaching these things. And get on and do it, and don't let anyone despise you. People always despise Bible teachers. Sometimes we're despisable because our personalities are just annoying. We mustn't be like that. But we mustn't be afraid to teach the truth because it brings health. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, help us to work out in our own lives that that calling to be godly and yet the reality we're weak. Help us to work out how as your spirit teaches us through your word as our hearts are filled with hope as, as we reflect on the one who gave himself for us help us to understand that good works flow from that. May your grace flood our lives that we may be men who are more Christy for your glory we pray Amen Amen. Thank you very much for staying awake